Section 17 of Dedications. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jennifer Painter. Dedications by Mary Elizabeth Brown. To Authors. Alcilia, Philoparthen's Loving Folly. By Samuel Page, 1619 To my approved and much-respected friend, Isaac Walton, To thee, thou more than thrice-beloved friend, I too unworthy of so great a bliss, These harsh-tuned lines I here to thee commend, Thou being cause it is now as it is, For hadst thou held thy tongue, by silence might these have been buried in oblivion's night. If they were pleasing, I would call them thine, and disavow my title to the verse. But, being bad, I needs must call them mine. No ill thing can be clothed in thy verse. Accept them then. Where I have offended, raise thou it out, and let it be amended. Quoted from Prefaces Dedications, Epistles, by Henry Huff, 1874. She Stoops to Conquer, by Oliver Goldsmith, 1773. To Samuel Johnston, LLD. Dear Sir, By inscribing this slight performance to you, I do not mean so much to compliment you as myself. It may do me some honour to inform the public, that I have lived many years in intimacy with you. It may serve the interests of mankind also to inform them that the greatest wit may be found in a character without impairing the most unaffected piety. I have, particularly, reason to thank you for your partiality to this performance. The undertaking of a comedy, not merely sentimental, was very dangerous and Mr. Coleman, who saw the piece in its various stages, always thought it so. However, I ventured to trust it to the public, and though it was necessarily delayed till late in the season, I have every reason to be grateful. I am, dear sir, your most sincere friend and admirer, Oliver Goldsmith. Coleman, the manager, had been most dilatory in making arrangements for the play, and it was Dr. Johnson who finally persuaded him, by the exercise of a kind of force, to promise that it should be produced. He continued to regard it as a dangerous experiment, however, even going so far as to announce its expected failure in the box office. Johnson and other friends of Goldsmith went in force to support the play, but their efforts were not needed, for it was prodigiously successful. All eyes, says Cumberland, were upon Johnson, who sat in a front row of a side box, and when he laughed, everybody thought themselves warranted to roar. Goldsmith, walking about disconsolately outside, was prevailed upon to go in only at the opening of the last act, just in time to hear a solitary hiss. Coleman, glad to have some excuse for his forebodings, told the alarmed author 
not to be afraid of a squib, when we have been sitting these two hours on a barrel of gunpowder. The Jar, a fragment of a Turkish tale, by Lord Byron, 1813. To Samuel Rogers, Esquire. As a slight but most sincere token of admiration for his genius, respect for his character, and gratitude for his friendship, this production is inscribed by his obliged and affectionate servant, Byron, London, May 1813. Poems by John Keats, 1817 To Lee Hunt, Esquire Glory and loveliness have passed away, for if we wander out no early morn, no wreathed incense do we see upborne into the east to meet the smiling day. No crowd of nymphs, soft-voiced and young and gay, in woven baskets bringing ears of corn, roses and pinks and violets, to adorn the shrine of Flora in her early May. But there are left delights as high as these, and I shall ever bless my destiny, that in a time when under pleasant trees pan is no longer sought, I feel a free, a leafy luxury, seeing I could please with these poor offerings a man like thee. On the evening when the last proof sheet was brought from the printer, it was accompanied by the information that if a dedication to the book was intended, it must be sent forthwith. Whereupon he, Keats, withdrew to a side table, and in the buzz of a mixed conversation, he composed and brought to Charles Ollier, the publisher, the dedication sonnet to Lee Hunt, quoted from Recollections of Writers by Charles and Mary Cowden Clark in Volume 4 of Buxton Foreman's edition of Keats. The first sonnet in Lee Hunt's Foliage, etc., 1818, is in a manner a reply to this dedication. To John Keats, "'Tis well you think me truly one of those whose sense discerns the loveliness of things, for surely, as I feel the bird that sings behind the leaves, or dawn as it upgrows, or the rich bee rejoicing as he goes, or the glad issue of emerging springs, or overhead the glide of a dove's wings, or turf, or trees, or midst of all, repose, and surely, as I feel things lovelier still, the human look and the harmonious form containing woman and the smile in ill, and such a heart as Charles's, wise and warm, as surely as all this I see e'en now, young Keats, a flowering laurel on your brow. Endymion, a poetic romance, by John Keats, 1818 inscribed to the memory of Thomas Chatterton. The original dedication, which was rejected, together with the original preface, by Keats, upon the unfavourable verdict of Reynolds and other friends, was as follows. Inscribed, with every feeling of pride and regret, and with a bowed mind, to the memory of the most English of poets except Shakespeare, Thomas Chatterton. To this dedication, the rejected preface referred in these terms. One word more, for we cannot help seeing our own affairs in every point of view, 
Should any one call my dedication to Chatterton effective, I answer as followeth. Were I dead, sir, I should like a book dedicated to me. In regard to the preface, Keats wrote to Reynolds, April the ninth, eighteen eighteen. Since you all agree that the thing is bad, it must be so. And in the same letter, he gave the simpler dedication as the one to be published. The Chinchi by Percy Bish Shelley, 1819 To Lee Hunt, Esquire My dear friend, I inscribe with your name, from a distant country, and after an absence whose months have seemed years, this the latest of my literary efforts. Those writings, which I have hitherto published, have been little else than visions which impersonate my own apprehensions of the beautiful and the just. I can also perceive in them the literary defects incidental to youth and impatience. They are dreams of what ought to be, or may be. The drama which I now present to you is a sad reality. I lay aside the presumptuous attitude of an instructor, and am content to paint, with such colours as my own heart furnishes, that which has been. Had I known a person more highly endowed than yourself with all that it becomes a man to possess, I had solicited for this work the ornament of his name. One more gentle, honourable, innocent and brave, one of more exalted toleration for all who do and think evil, and yet himself more free from evil, who knows better how to receive and how to confer a benefit, though he must ever confer far more than he can receive, one of simpler, and in the highest sense of the word, of purer life and manners, I never knew, and I had already been fortunate in friendships when your name was added to the list. In that patient and irreconcilable enmity with domestic and political tyranny and imposture which the tenor of your life has illustrated, and which, had I health and talents, should illustrate mine, let us, comforting each other in our task, live and die. All happiness attend you, your affectionate friend, Percy B. Shelley. Rome, May the 29th, 1819. In offering this dedication to Hunt, Shelley wrote, I have written something and finished it, different from anything else, and a new attempt for me, and I mean to dedicate it to you. I should not have done so without your approbation, but I asked your picture last night, and it smiled assent. If I did not think it in some degree worthy of you, I would not make you a public offering of it. Sardanapalus, A Tragedy, by Lord Byron, 1821 To the illustrious Goethe, a stranger presumes to offer the homage of a literary vassal to his liege lord, the first of existing writers, who has created the literature of his own country and illustrated that of Europe. The unworthy production which the author ventures to inscribe to him is entitled Sardanapalus. Byron had been greatly pleased with the praise Goethe bestowed on Manfred, 1817, in his Kunst und Alterung. Of this dedication Goethe wrote, Well knowing myself and my labours in my old age, 
I could not but reflect with gratitude and diffidence on the expressions contained in this dedication, nor interpret them but as the generous tribute of a superior genius, no less original in the choice than inexhaustible in the materials of his subject. Philosophy in Sport Made Science in Earnest by John Ayrton Paris, 1827 To Miss Maria Edgeworth Madam, to whom can a work which professes to blend amusement with instruction be dedicated with so much propriety as to one whose numerous writings have satisfactorily demonstrated the practicability and value of such a union to one who has stripped romance of her meretricious trappings and converted her theatre into a temple worthy of minerva justly has it been observed that to the magic pens of madame d'arblay and yourself we are indebted for having the novel restored to its consequence and therefore to its usefulness and i may be allowed to add that your harry and lucy have shown how profitably and agreeably the machinery of fiction may be worked for the dissemination of truth that a life which has been so honourable to yourself and so serviceable to the commonwealth may be long extended and deservedly enjoyed is the fervent wish of the author don quixote paris eighteen twenty seven to the happy writer the chosen of the muses to the all-famous the wonderful and inimitable author of the ingenious hidalgo don quixote de la mancha is erected and dedicated this little monument of modern typography and chalcography by his passionate admirer joaquin maria de ferrer eugene aram a tale by lord lytton eighteen thirty one to sir walter scott bart etc etc sir it has long been my ambition to add some humble tribute to the offerings laid upon the shrine of your genius at each succeeding book that i have given to the world i have paused to consider if it were worthy to be inscribed with your great name and at each i have played the procrastinator and hoped for that morrow of better desert which never came but defluit amnis the tide runs on and i am tired of waiting for the ford which the tides refuse i seize then the present opportunity not as the best but as the only one i can be sure of commanding to express that affectionate admiration with which you have inspired me in common with all your contemporaries and which a french writer has not ungracefully termed the happiest prerogative of genius as a poet and as a novelist your fame has attained to that height in which praise has become superfluous but in the character of the writer there seems to me a yet higher claim to veneration than in that of the writings the example your genius sets us who can emulate the example your moderation bequeaths to us who shall forget that nature must indeed be gentle which has conciliated the envy that pursues intellectual greatness 
and left without an enemy a man who has no living equal in renown. You have gone for a while from the scenes you have immortalised, to regain, we trust, the health which has been impaired by your noble labours, or by the manly struggles with adverse fortunes, which have not found the frame as indomitable as the mind. Take with you the prayers of all whom your genius, with playful art, has soothed in sickness, or has strengthened with generous precepts against the calamities of life. Navis quae tibi creditum, debes virgilium, redas incolumnen. You, I feel assured, will not deem it presumptuous in one who, to that bright and undying flame which now streams from the grey hills of Scotland, the last halo with which you have crowned her literary glories, has turned from his first childhood with a deep and unrelaxing devotion. You, I feel assured, will not deem it presumptuous in him to inscribe an idle work with your illustrious name, a work which, however worthless in itself, assumes something of value in his eyes when thus rendered a tribute of respect to you. The author of Eugene Aram, London, December the 22nd, 1831. This was written at the time of Scott's visit to Italy, after the great blows to his health and his fortune. The music of nature, or an attempt to prove that what is passionate and pleasing in the art of singing, speaking, and performing upon musical instruments, is derived from the sounds of the animated world. By William Gardner, 1832 to Thomas More, Esquire, my dear sir, in dedicating this work to you, I am well aware that the sanction of your name will confer upon it an honour much above its merits. But to whom could I address my performance with so much propriety as to our greatest lyric poet, who has united the music of nature to his verse with a success unattained by any other writer of the present age? I am, dear sir, with great regard, your obliged and faithful servant, William Gardiner, Leicester, June the 4th, 1832. Bells and Pomegranates, Number 1, Pippa Passes, by Robert Browning, 1841. Two or three years ago I wrote a play about which the chief matter I much care to recollect at present is that a pitfall of good-natured people applauded it. Ever since, I have been desirous of doing something in the same way that should better reward their attention. What follows, I mean for the first of a series of dramatical pieces to come out at intervals, and I amuse myself by fancying that the cheap mode in which they appear will for once help me to a sort of pit audience again. Of course, such a work must go on no longer than it is light, and to provide against a too certain and but too possible contingency, let me hasten to say now what, if I were sure of success, I would try to say circumstantially enough at the close, that I dedicate my best intentions most admiringly to the author of Ion, most affectionately, 
to Sergeant Talford, Robert Browning. After the first performance of Ion in 1835, there was a gathering at Talford's house, and Talford included Browning, known then only as the author of Pauline and Paracelsus, with Wordsworth and Landor, who were present, in a toast to the Poets of England. Columbay's Birthday by Robert Browning, 1844 No one loves and honours Barry Cornwall more than does Robert Browning, who, having nothing better than this play to give him in proof of it, must say so. Luria by Robert Browning, 1846 I dedicate this last attempt for the present at dramatic poetry to a great dramatic poet, wishing what I write may be read by his light, if a phrase originally addressed by not the least worthy of his contemporaries to Shakespeare may be applied here by one whose sole privilege is in a grateful admiration to Walter Savage Landor. Landor's lines to Robert Browning had appeared in the Morning Chronicle for November the 22nd, 1845. There is delight in singing, though none hear beside the singer, and there is delight in praising, though the praiser sits alone, and see the praised far off him, far above. Shakespeare is not our poet, but the world's. Therefore on him no speech, and brief for thee, Browning. Since Chaucer was alive and hale, no man hath walked along our roads with step so active, so inquiring eye, or tongue so varied in discourse. But warmer climes give brighter plumage, stronger wing. The breeze of alpine heights thou playest with, borne on beyond Sorrento and Amalfi, where the siren waits thee, singing song for song. Life and Works of Thomas Cole by Louis L. Noble, 1853 To William Cullen Bryant, Esq whose pen, with the pencil of coal, is alike identified with American scenery. This volume is respectfully inscribed. Songs of the Cavaliers by Walter Thornbury, 1857 To Douglas Gerald, the dramatist, satirist and novelist, these verses are dedicated by the author, from one who is struggling and hopes to win, to one who has struggled, and has won, quoted from Wheatley's Dedication of Books. The Complete Works of William Shakespeare, edited by the Reverend Alexander Dice, 1857. To John Forster, Esquire, historian, biographer, and critic. This edition of Shakespeare, in grateful acknowledgement of the zeal with which he promoted its publication, is inscribed by his friend, Alexander Dice The Life and Times of Bertrand du Gusclin by David F. Jameson, 1864 To W. Gilmore Sims, Esquire, LLD My dear sir, in looking abroad for one to whom I might inscribe this volume, I know of no one to whom I can more worthily dedicate it than to you. To you, my nearest neighbour and one of my oldest friends. To you, 
who first suggested the work as one suited to my capacity, my tastes, and to what little learning I possessed, who watched over its progress with scarcely less interest than if it had been your own, and who cheered me on through the years of labour it has cost me to its final completion now. To me it will be a pleasing reflection that we, who have lived under the same sky, who have looked to heaven for the same refreshing rains and for its grateful sunshine, that we, who have so long interchanged our thoughts on questions of deep interest and who have sympathised in each other's joys and sorrows, should have our names associated in the minds of men when we shall no longer be affected either by their praise or their censure. Inque sepulcro, sinon urna, Tamen jugendet nos litera, sinon osibus osa meis, at nomen nomine tangam. Ever most truly yours, D. F. Jamison, Burwood, February 17th, 1862. Selections from the Poetical Works of Robert Browning, 1872. Dedicated to Alfred Tennyson. In poetry, illustrious and consummate. In friendship, noble and sincere. Myth and Mythmakers by John Fiske, 1872. To my dear friend, William Dean Howells, in remembrance of pleasant autumn evenings spent among werewolves and trolls and nixies, I dedicate this record of our adventures. Darwinism and Other Essays by John Fiske, 1879 To Thomas Henry Huxley In remembrance of three happy days at Petersham among the blue hills of Massachusetts and of many pleasant fireside chats in London, I dedicate this little book. The Bay of Seven Islands by John Greenleaf Whittier 1882. To my friend and neighbour, Harriet Prescott Spofford, whose poems have lent a new interest to our beautiful river valley. From the green Amesbury Hill, which bears the name of that half-mythic ancestor of mine, who trod its slopes two hundred years ago, down the long valley of the Merrimack, midway between me and the river's mouth, I see thy home, set like an eagle's nest, among dear Ireland's immemorial pines, crowning the crag on which the sunset breaks its last red arrow. Many a tale and song, which thou hast told or sung, I call to mind, softening with silvery mist the woods and hills, the outthrust headlands and in-reaching bays of our north-eastern coastline, trending where the gulf, midsummer, feels the chill brocade of icebergs stranded at its northern gate to thee the echoes of the island sound answer not vainly nor in vain the moan of the south breaker prophesying storm and thou hast listened like myself to men see perilled oft where anticosti lies like a fell spider in its web of fog or where the grand bank shallows with the wrecks of sunken fishes and to whom strange isles and frost-rimmed bays and trading stations seem familiar as Great Neck and Kettle Cove 
Nubble and Boon, the common names of home. So let me offer thee this lay of mine, simple and homely, lacking much thy play of colour and of fancy. If its theme and treatment seem to thee befitting youth rather than age, let this be my excuse. It has beguiled some heavy hours and called some pleasant memories up, and, better still, occasion lent me for a kindly word to one who is my neighbour and my friend. Airs from Arcady and Elsewhere by Henry Kyler Bunner, 1884 To Brander Matthews by the Hearth The night is late, your fire is whitening fast, our speech has silent spaces and is low, yet there is much to say before I go, and much is left unsaid, dear friend, at last. Yet something may be said, this fading fire was never cold for me, and never cold has been the welcoming glance I knew of old, warm with a friendship usage could not tire. Take these, the gathered songs of striving years, and many fledged and warmed beside your hearth, not for whatever they may have of worth, a simpler tie perchance my worth endears. With them this wish, that when your days shall close, life, a well-used and well-contented guest, may gently press the hand I oft have pressed, and leave you by love's fire to calm repose. Poems of the Principal Foreign Authors Rendered into Spanish by Jaime Marti Miguel, Madrid, 1885 To Victor Hugo Your name has issued from my pen and my lips many times. On the other hand, your recognition will never go out from my memory. Accepting this offering, you will prove to me that I do you justice, confiding in your benevolence. The grain of sand if it does not aspire to fuse itself in the sun, ought not to solicit the heat of its rays. Tiresias and Other Poems by Alfred Lord Tennyson, 1885 To my good friend Robert Browning, whose genius and geniality will best appreciate what may be best and make most allowance for what may be worst, this volume is affectionately dedicated. It is characteristic of a certain shyness in Tennyson that he never told Browning of the dedication, and it was not until the book was in the hands of the public that the latter learned the circumstance from a friend. Alfred Lord Tennyson by Arthur Waugh, 1893 Movements of Religious Thought in Britain During the Nineteenth Century by John Tullock, 1885 To Mrs. Oliphant author of The Chronicles of Carlingford, A Beleaguered City, Life of Edward Irving, The Literary History of England, 1790-1825, etc. My dear Mrs. Oliphant, it is a great pleasure to me to be allowed to associate your name with these lectures. Slight as they are, I have been reminded more than once during their preparation of a large subject which used to engage our discussion many years ago, and in the treatment of which you were to bear what would have proved by far the most interesting part. This, 
like many other projects, is not now likely to be attempted, but the thought of it has brought you and our long friendship much to my mind. If I were to express all the admiration I feel for your genius, and still more all the esteem I have learnt to cherish for your character, I should use language which I know you would refuse to read, but I may at least be allowed to say thus publicly, that I know of no writer to whose large powers, spiritual insight and purity of thought and subtle discrimination of many of the best aspects of our social life and character, our generation owes so much as it does to you. Always faithfully yours, John Tullock, University St Andrews, August 1885. Our Sentimental Journey Through France and Italy by Joseph and Elizabeth Pennell, 1888. To Laurence Stern, Esquire. Dear Sir, we never should have ventured to address you had we not noticed of late that Mr. Andrew Lang has been writing to dead authors, not one of whom, to our knowledge, has taken offence at this liberty. Encouraged by his example, we beg leave to dedicate to you this history of our journey, laying it with the most respectful humility before your sentimental shade, and regretting it is without that charm of style which alone can make it worthy. And, as in our modesty, we would indeed be unwilling to trouble you a second time, we must take advantage of this unhoped-for opportunity to add a few words of explanation about our journey in your honour. It is because of the conscientious fidelity with which we rode over the route made ever famous by you that we have included ourselves in the class of sentimental travellers, of which you must ever be the incomparable head. To other sentiments, dear sir, whatever we may have thought in the enthusiasm of setting out, we now know we can lay no claim. Experience has taught us that it depends upon the man himself and not upon his circumstances or surroundings. Nowadays, the manner of travelling through France and Italy is by rail and mostly on cook's tickets, and chaises have become a luxury which we at least cannot afford. The only vehicle by which we could follow your wheel tracks along the old post roads was our tricycle, an ingenious machine of modern invention, endeared to us because without it our sentimental journey would have been an impossibility. In these degenerate days, you, sir, we are sure, would prefer it to a railway carriage, as little suited to your purposes as to those of Mr. Ruskin, an author whose rare and racy sayings you would no doubt admire were you still interested in earthly literature. Besides, in a tandem, with its two seats, there would be nothing to stir up a disagreeable sensation within you. You would still have a place for the lady. Because it was not possible to follow you in many ways, we have spared no pains to be faithful in others. We left out not one city which you visited, and it was a pleasure to learn that the world is still as beautiful as you found it, though today most men of culture care so little for what is about them. They would have us believe all beauty belongs to the past. And again, dear sir, 
as it was your invariable custom to borrow the thoughts and words of any writer who particularly pleased you, a custom your enemies have made the most of, we have not hesitated to use any pictures of other men, or any descriptions and expressions in your works, that seemed appropriate to the record of our journey. More honest than you, sir, we have given credit to the artists, that their names may enhance the value of our modest offering. But as you will recognise your own words without our pointing them out, we have not even put them into quotation marks, an omission which you of all men can best appreciate. In conclusion, we think you may be pleased to hear something of your last earthly resting place in the burying ground belonging to St. George's, Hanover Square. We made a pilgrimage to it but a few Sundays ago. Though your grave was neglected until the exact spot is no longer known, the stone, since raised near the place, is so often visited that, though it stands far from the path, a way to it has been worn in the grass by the feet of the many who have come to breathe a sigh or drop a tear for poor Yorick. We have the honour to be, dear sir, your most obedient and most devoted and most humble servants. Joseph Pennell, Elizabeth Robbins Pennell. In and Out of Three Normandy Inns by Anna Bowman Dodd, 1892 To Edmund Clarence Stedman My dear Mr. Stedman, to this little company of Normandy men and women, you will, I know, extend a kindly greeting, if only because of their nationality. To your courtesy, possibly, you will add the leaven of interest, when you perceive, as you must, that their qualities are all their own, their defects being due solely to my own imperfect presentment. With sincere esteem, Anna Bowman Dodd. The Sin Eater and Other Tales by Fiona MacLeod in brackets William Sharp, 1895 To George Meredith in gratitude and homage and because he is Prince of Keltdom. For Dowsey in Exile and Other Poems by Edmund Goss, 1896 Dedication to Austin Dobson Neighbour of the near domain, stay a while your passing wane. Though to give is more your way, take a gift from me today. From my homely store I bring signs of my poor husbanding. Here a spike of purple flocks, here a spicy bunch of stocks, mushrooms from my moister fields, apples that my orchard yields. Nothing for the show they make, something for the donor's sake. Since for ten years we have been best of neighbours ever seen. We have fronted evil weather, nip of critics frost together. We have shared laborious days, shared the pleasantness of praise. Brother not more kind to brother, we have cheered and helped each other. Till so far the fields of each into the others stretch and reach, that perchance when both are gone, neither may be named alone. The pursuit of the houseboat, being some further account of the diverse doings of the associated shades, 
under the leadership of Sherlock Holmes Esquire by John Kendrick Bangs, 1899 To A. Conan Doyle Esquire, with the author's sincerest regards and thanks for the untimely demise of his great detective which made these things possible. A Boy I Knew, Four Dogs and Some More Dogs by Lawrence Hutton, 1900 to Mark Twain, the creator of Tom Sawyer, one of the best boys I ever knew. The Ways of Men by Elliot Gregory, 1900 To Edith Wharton, I have not lacked thy mild reproof, nor golden largesse of thy praise. Donegal Fairy Stories by Seamus McManus, 1900 it is a humble disciple who dedicates with great reverence this little book to the memory of those Gaelic shenanches who have kept alive for us, through love of country and love of storytelling only, the fine ancient tales of our race, from age to age and from generation to generation. Poems by John B. Tabb, 1900 Ave, Sydney Lanier. Ere time's horizon line was set, somewhere in space our spirits met, then o'er the starry parapet came wandering here. And now, that thou art gone again beyond the verge, I hasten amain, lost echo of a loftier strain, to greet thee there. The Wessex of Thomas Hardy by Bertram C. A. Windle 1902. To the only begetter of this Wessex, Thomas Hardy, these. Letters from a Son to His Self-Made Father by Charles Eustace Merriman, 1903. To Mark Twain, A Ready-Made Wit. Sidelights on Charles Lamb by Bertram Dobell. 1903. To E. V. Lucas, Esquire, editor of the works of Charles and Mary Lamb. A pleasant and a grateful task is thine, filling thy days with self-rewarding toil, and nights with dreams wherein two spirits shine, scarce freer now than then from earthly soil. Happy are they thy loving care to gain, happy art thou whom fortune so has blessed. They would have loved thy cordial heart and brain, and kinship to themselves in thee confessed. Unlovely traits that cannot daylight bear, too oft deep search in seeming goodness shows, but thou mayst fearless seek, since only fair actions and thoughts thy delvings can disclose. From every shadow of dishonour free, clear is their fame, and clear shall ever be. The Book of Camping and Woodcraft by Horace Keffart, 1906 To the Shade of Nesmuk in the Happy Hunting Ground A few lines from the foreword explain the dedication. I owe much, both to the spirit and the letter of that classic in the literature of outdoor life, The Little Book on Woodcraft by the late George R. Sears, who is best known by his Indian-given title of Nesmuk. It is but fitting that I should dedicate to the memory of its author 
this humble pendant to his work. Lady Baltimore by Owen Wister, 1906 To S. Weir Mitchell, with the affection and memories of all my life. The Industrial Republic by Upton Sinclair, 1907 To H. G. Wells, The Next Most Hopeful La Cena delle Beffe by Sem Benelli, 1910 This jesting poem is dedicated to Giulio di Frenzi, beloved brother, who on the shifting sands of art knows well how to trace and design with his sorrowful and ready pen the limits of our ills, eternal and unvarying, unbounded and monotonous. Seven Short Plays by Lady Augusta Gregory, 1911 To you, W. B. Yeats, good praiser, wholesome dispraiser, heavy-handed judge, open-handed helper of us all, I offer a play of my plays for every night of the week, because you like them and because you have taught me my trade. Abbey Theatre, May the 1st, 1901 The Creeping Tides by Kate Jordan, 1913 To John Macefield An expression of appreciation, and because years ago, when shipwrecked in New York, he drifted to harbour among the old streets of Greenwich Village, where this story is laid. The tide, the tide, the tide be coming for some on us. It have some one every time. And it comes up, it comes nearer, and then it spreads. On it comes with a rush, with a roar. And the claws stretching at you, oh, it takes them. And it goes over them, over them. One roaring rush. The Tragedy of Man, John Macefield. End of section 17